Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to be doing an in-person interview. I'm here in Jacksonville, Florida with Howard Jackson Curry. He's a singer, songwriter. His music is best described as Americana, steeped in roots and folk country with a touch of blues. I would describe what he does as story songs. He has an EP coming out. It's called Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow. This is a man with a lot of great stories. He's very aware, I think, of the human condition. So, Mr. Curry, thank you so much for meeting me here in person. Well, Paul, I appreciate you having me here. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I, uh, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these songs, and and uh, I look forward to uh, to your questions. So, I think most stories are best from the beginning. We're in the state of Florida, which a lot of people may not be aware exactly that there's many, many great songwriters, many, many great musicians who came from this state. So tell us about where you're from and a little bit about what life was like growing up. Well, I was uh, born and raised here in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, my early years were spent on the north side of town. That's where I, where I started school over there. And uh, I would characterize Jacksonville at that time in the early 60s as, uh, as, a, as a fairly southern southern town, which is, it still is in many respects. There was a lot of music in our house. There was a lot of music in the houses of my relatives. I have 54 first cousins on my, on my father's side, <laughs> you know, of the family. So uh, that includes my father's children. There's 54 first cousins. So it was a lot of, a lot of people. So, you know, we listened to a lot of music. The Grand Ole Opry was, was something we listened to on the radio. And when we had TV and when we had electricity, we would, we would watch what we could on TV. You know, Hee Haw was a, was a, that show was a, a staple in our, in our household. But, uh, you know, the early years for me musically began with 78 RPM records of, on the MGM label of, of Hank Williams. And then the music that, that he had recorded under the name of Luke the Drifter. In particular, uh, songs like, uh, Beyond the Sunset. You know, when you're, when you're a young child and you hear something like that, um, it tends to, it, it, at least with me, it, it, it resonated. And I, I knew, though Hank did not write that particular song, his delivery of that song was, was, uh, was fantastic. So the early, the early days were things like that. Johnny Cash, a lot of Johnny Cash, you know, the, the, the first guitar that I ever owned, I think I was six. I begged for a guitar. We, um, and we didn't have a whole lot, but my mama bought me a guitar and, and I used to try to play along with, with Johnny Cash records. You know, we had a, we had a record player and, um, 
So that was my first, I would say, introduction to music and music lessons were, were those three or four chords that Johnny Cash was, he and Luther Perkins were, were, were playing on those records. But um, life in Jacksonville was pretty simple. Frankly, looking back on it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have lived that way. As I grow, as I grow older and, and in life, simpler seems to be better. And it seems like some really complicated times for us right now. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. So Northeast Florida is always going to be my home, though I've left it a few times and traveled around the country and out, outside the country a, a, a number of times. I always want to come back home. Hmm. Now, can you remember the first time and, and not, necessarily just limited to songs Mm -hmm. but the first time you found yourself writing and what i mean by writing is it wasn't like a teacher was telling you to write Mm -hmm. you you intended to write something probably early early attempts as a as a child and and those weren't you know the maybe not intentional necessarily as intentional but i mean i remember the first time that I knew I wanted to create a song. I remember that very well. Hmm. It was on a, my brother and I were, we, we were part of this little league baseball and uh, we were out at practice and it was a clubhouse adjacent to the, uh, to the field. And we would go there and there was a pinball machine and a, and a jukebox and you would go in there and get, get, you know, Coca-Cola and a hot dog or whatnot. This would have been around 69, or 70, 70, 71, right in there. Mm. I was nine years or so, nine years old or so. And, um, I put, put a dime in this jukebox and I, and I played a song that was written by Jimmy Webb, Galveston. And this song is a couple of minutes, two and a half, three minutes long, I would say. And it just, it knocked me out. You know, he tells this epic story in, in less than three minutes. And though I was a young boy, I, I felt and still feel compelled to to try to do that. You know, that that's likely not to happen. But um, I, I'm still moved and affected by that song to this day. And it would be years later before I discovered Jimmy Webb's version of this song. And that's even, in my estimation, a more powerful rendition of the song than what I heard and Glenn Campbell was a musical genius in every respect. But uh, he interpreted that song in a completely different way than Jimmy had written it. And probably for commercial reasons was a was a was a was the right thing to do to sell to sell records. But if you want the spirit of the song, in my humble opinion, you gotta go back to Jimmy's version of the song when when he played it on an acoustic guitar. <laughs> or someone played it on an acoustic guitar and he sang it. It is, it is a very powerful delivery of, of a very powerful song that is very succinct and it's two and a half, three minutes and it's epic tale and it's, it's a, it's a beautiful song. I knew right then I felt a strong, the strongest connection I ever felt to music. I felt right then. Galveston. Absolutely. Jimmy Webb. Absolutely. Why do you think it is that in particular, because that song has been recorded by a few people now, but why do you think Jimmy Webb happened to really knock it out with his version? Well, I, I think Jimmy was, I, I can't speak for Jimmy Webb. I can't get inside his head. I only know what the result was in my, you know, the way I received it. 
Jimmy Webb was 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 trying to evoke a feeling. Many, you know, he he tapped into a number of of things that we all experience as human beings in that song: fear, loneliness, love. It near, I mean, it nearly make you cry. If it, it, it does make you cry at times, you know. It, it uh, I think Jimmy was trying to to tap into the human condition with that song, and he did yeah. exceptionally well, as well as anyone ever has, in my humble opinion. Well, last night, I, I should tell the listeners, we had a great seafood meal, and we were talking about great songs. And I like how you realize the importance of great songs. So tell us about some of the songs that you would have to put up there as these are songs that have influenced me. These are songs that are just exceptional in quality. Uh, sea of Heartbreak, recorded by Don Gibson, the late 50s. He recorded that song. Oh, Lonesome Me, recorded, and I believe written by Don Gibson. Oh, Lonesome Me. Mansion on the Hill, Hank Williams. All I can do is write about it. Ronnie Van Zandt and Alan Collins. The, there's, there's an essence to all of those songs. There's a, there's a truth to all of those songs that I just, that I just, uh, named for you. D- uh, Dublin Blues, Guy Clark. Uh, you know, Guy Clark, uh, was a master at, at depicting, very, very succinctly depicting the human condition. And that, that guy was a master at that. So I think the common thread with all of those songs for me is that they, they represent the, the common person, just mm-hmm. all of us. There's, all, there's a little bit of all of us in all of those songs. Yeah. For sure. Sure. And all of these songs you've listed are, are very heavy on stories. Yes. You know, yes. They're, they're all stories. Like Sea of Heartbreak, which is and that's one of my f- absolute favorite songs. It's fascinating because you get a complete story in just a few minutes. You sure do. Yeah. There's no names of this this person's this name, that, but you understand everything that happened. You absolutely do. <laughs> which is, which is uh, I, I, was, I was listening to an interview one time with, with Guy Clark, and he talked about the importance of leaving holes and leaving space for people to fill themselves, right? Right. With songs. And, and I think that's a challenge for people who write songs is to say enough, but not too much. And that's an example. Very good. Sea of Heartbreak is a perfect example of that. That could be anyone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it is all of us, actually, at some point. Right. You live long enough. You're going you're gonna to wait around in the Sea of Heartbreak. <laughs> well put. So for your songwriting and for the music that you record, what is it? that you're trying to accomplish? What is your goal for the art you create? Well, I, I think anyone who writes songs wants someone to be affected by it in some way, make them at least think something or feel something. And that's, that's, a, that's a steep hill to climb. And it's very risky to, to write something and, and play something for someone. But at the end of the day... If, if you're compelled to do it, it doesn't matter if you're eight or 80. If you're compelled to do it, time is tight. You, you do it. And, and, um, so I would say quite simply, I, I'm just, I'm trying to write something that someone would want to listen to more than once. Yeah. You know, 
I would want, I would eventually, hopefully write something that when someone hears it, they want to go back and hear it again. Just the way I want to go back and hear Dublin Blues. Just the way I go back many, 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 many times and listen to Sea of Heartbreak. Just like I can't get enough of Galveston, right? Mm-hmm. Now these are, these are very top, top tier, uniquely well written songs. And I'm not suggesting that I would ever, you know, could, could ever even compete with that or even, even get in that room. There's nothing wrong with trying. Hmm. Well, we've talked about songwriters. What about singers? What, what singers have resonated with you the most? Uh, Tom Petty is a, was, was, in my humble opinion, again, Tom Petty was a great singer. Tom had a, Tom had a, countenance and a style that was very unique. Ronnie Van Zandt was a great singer. Bob Dylan is a great singer. People would argue that point. I would suggest that, that Bob Dylan is one of the one of the one of the better singers that we've that we've heard come out of this country in a hundred years. Arlo Guthrie's a good singer. Neil Young, I have I really much very much like Neil Young's voice. I think Neil Young's voice is perfectly aligned with his with his music. Again, people may argue with that. Hmm. They're not the people I've named aren't necessarily traditionally considered to be great singers. Right. Frank Sinatra is a great, great singer. He's a crooner, right? Right. These guys aren't necessarily that, but these guys create music or have created music that they are able to deliver with their voice. So I, 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 I I'm, you know, I like their voice. I like the way they sing, and I think I think some of them are hyper criticized for being poor singers, uh, but I don't see it that way. Hmm. Well, I hope you take this as a compliment. There is something of Neil Young in your vocals. Well, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> Neil Young has written some some timeless songs. You know, he's right up there with some of the greatest writers. And again, I, I, I think Neil's a great singer. So I appreciate you saying that. But I, other than that, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to even respond to that. <laughs> well, we were mentioning at the beginning the EP, which I'm guessing by the time everyone hears this, it'll be out there in the world. Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow. When I think about characters that I really like, I don't like it when a character is 100% purely good. I don't like it when a character is 100% purely evil. <laughs> and I don't, I don't trust people who think that a person can be that way either. So tell us about the title, Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow, because it, it's something that really, I think, it's very, it's very spot on. Well, I think, I think Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow... Is, is all of us, frankly, <laughs> to, to put it simply. I'm sure you've had days when you're at the top of your game and, you know, one, one wrong move or one unsuspecting move and the next thing you know, you're at the bottom of the heap. So life is, is, uh, is a series of, of, of challenges and opportunities and, Losses and victories, and I think uh, hero today, villain tomorrow would describe most people that I know. And that's why you picked the title. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's yeah, 
There are songwriters who say that they write, and it's almost, you know, the late Bobby Charles, he said, it, it felt like songs fell from the sky. Mm-hmm. And then there's other songwriters, they compare themselves to being like a cobbler working late in the shop. They're, they're building the shoe minute by minute, mm-hmm. and it's it's tedious. What would you say, how do you write songs? Well, that's evolved over many years. I think there's a couple of things to think about with respect to, to songwriting. And one is there's this, this, uh, this very nuanced, undefinable opportunity that comes along when, when a song presents itself. And then the other side of that, there's an actual craft to, to, to writing songs. You know, there's a method to that. Someone like me, who's not a school musician, who's not studied musical theory, doesn't necessarily fall into the category of someone who's, who's, you know, who applies the craft aspects as much. Though I will say, over time, you, you have to, you have to entertain that. You have to begin to entertain that. There has to be some structure to, to the song. But if, if a song is, if a song presents itself, I think the, the most important thing is to, is to grab it when it presents itself. And I think some of the greatest songwriters, John Prine has alluded to this many times. You know, uh, John Prine, who is someone I have great admiration for, has suggested, or has suggested, did suggest a number of times that a song may present itself to him and he did not seize on that opportunity and it just went down the road and someone else wrote it, <laughs> you know? So, so you have to be, you have to be engaged. I find personally that forcing things is, is not, does not result, does not yield the results that, that I would necessarily be looking for. So I try not to force things, but, but I am constantly trying to keep my eyes and ears open for, for, um, for something that may come my way, yeah. Is there a person that you would say, in the course of you developing and writing songs, has been a greatest mentor or a greatest advisor? Well, there have been a few. I've had a, I've had a wonderful, though, you know, music has not been a way that I earned my living, primarily. I've been connected to musicians and music, my whole life in some way. When I was a kid, I had an uncle who played a country gentleman Gretsch guitar and he played Chet Atkins style guitar and hmm. used to sit at his feet and just, he had an amplifier he'd plug in and he just, he just entertained himself and the people that were in the living room, you know, that was, a, that was influence. It was something I was enamored with as a kid, you know, but as I grew older and, and took on responsibilities of families and whatnot and out earning a living, the first person that really, I feel like, gave me direct feedback with respect to songwriting was a local, really, uh, he's Jacksonville. He's really, uh, he was a native of Memphis, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. His name was Gary Smalley, and Gary passed away in uh, March of 1999. But Gary and I became fast friends in the uh, mid-90s. And um, at one point in our relationship, uh, towards uh, the end of his life, I took him a cassette tape. 
and the lyrics and chord charts for for about 45 minutes of music that I had written. And he wasn't feeling the best, so I really wasn't sure if he would get around to listening to it. But lo and behold, he did. And he called me on the phone, and I'll never forget it. He said, I, I listened to your songs. And, of course, I got very quiet because I wanted I had so much respect for Gary musically and also as a human being. So I really wanted to hear what he had to say. And, and he began to describe these songs that I had given him to listen to. And he told me up right up front, he said, you don't want to play these songs for anyone. They're not ready to be to be heard. He, he said, uh, I can tell that you're on to something. I can I can I can just about gather what you're trying to do. And then he began song by song, systematically point out what I should not do in the future. Hmm. Now, Gary wasn't, I would call, I would characterize Gary as a roots musician, a spectacular songwriter. He also had the persona to go along with it, stage presence, the whole, the whole thing. But Gary was a roots, you know, roots musician. And he was coming at that from a place of real sincerity. I took him very seriously. And those songs have sat idle ever since then, you know, and that was a long time ago. But I immediately began to write in, in a different way. That was the craft part that, that I was referring to. I began to be more intentional with that aspect of it. And, you know, Gary was really, really adamant about certain phrases and things that, that you know, was, he 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 said it's very hard to to come to he says it's very hard to come up with a new way to say something that's been said many many times but that if you're going to write songs you're going to have to try to do that so it's very hard to quantify the impact that had on me but it was probably the first person who I respected as a musician who actually took time and in fact probably didn't really feel up to doing it, but he took the time to do it, and I will be forever grateful for that. We were talking last night, and you're somebody who has traveled a lot of places across this country, and one of the songs on the EP is called El Paso. What do you think the experience of traveling and meeting people from all different places and living in places like you've lived in New York City you're, you're back in your home state, the Sunshine State, which is a nice place to be. But what, what's traveling done for you? Well, I, I think uh, I have traveled a lot. I've been, I've been in most of the states in the United States and a, and a few foreign countries. I think one of the things that traveling has done for me is, is help me identify a common thread in people, right? I mean, as different as we all are, we're awfully alike in so many ways. And one of the things that none of us can escape is a human condition. <laughs> That's that, that we're not, we're, uh, you know, as, as Hank Williams wrote one time, you'll never get out of this world alive. Well, that's a fact. Yeah. And it's also a fact that you're never going to get out of this world without having experienced the human condition. And what I have found is that if you give people an opportunity, they will demonstrate the best aspects of their character to you. And one of the things we should all strive to do, and what I try to do, is try to learn from people. Because 
as I grow older in life and as I, as I advance in life, I realize that I know so much less than I once knew, you know, and, and, um, that's why if you, if you take a listen to these songs on this EP, if I were to go into a room by myself, which I did to write those songs, it took a team of people to create this EP. I was very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to play with these, these guys that I played with on this EP. They were just, they brought, they brought a perspective to, to the process. And I'll tell you, it was a challenge to record these songs because we started recording these songs pre COVID-19. I'm in New York City. So we would, I would come down and, and we would work in the studio here. And then once COVID-19 presented itself, that was a huge obstacle for us. Though, listen, I know we're in a digital age and we can push things over the, over the, you know, the World Wide Web and whatnot, but it's not the same as being in a room with someone. Just like sitting here with you right now, for me personally, is a much, much greater, better experience than speaking to you over the phone or emailing or texting with you. Right. You know, and I think that's one of the things that traveling around, back to your original question, has offered me is an opportunity to interact with real people in real places and and see the more I see myself in them, the the, the more forgiving I am of 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 what they may or may not do. Hmm. Down the road, half mile is an East Coast girl with an LA smile nice. So true, they look right through me With her blue jean style and radio on She keeps a beat to the rock and roll song As a guitar player takes her away She won't look my way Sometimes I remember Where it all began She was just climbing out And I was barely sliding in That's interesting that you say that because one of the songs, I think this one might be my favorite. That's just the way it goes. There's a message of, of kind of forgiveness and acceptance in that song, wouldn't you say? I hope so. It, um, you know, that was one of those songs that, that came, it presented itself 
And uh, interestingly, when that song presented itself, I was actually that same day, that same afternoon, evening, I should say, early evening, I was going to a place not far from where we're sitting. I was going to meet a, a musician friend of mine, Ed Cotton, and he was going to let me sit in with him over there at this, this place. And I literally wrote the song and took it with me to, to this place. And we went, I asked him to go in this back room and I, I, I played through the song and he says, we're going to play this. So literally it was played for the first time with Ed and those musicians that night. And it hasn't changed since I wrote it, frankly, if at all. It, it is, uh, it is what it was. And, it, you know, that's it. I've known you a fourth of my life. Came to me on a lonely night. And I was sure you were gonna thrill me. so long and now you're saying that you're gonna leave me that's just a way it goes in a beat up truck down a two lane road trailer dust and broken dreams behind that's just the way it goes learning to live with highs and lows I hope it's even So you've you've alluded to them a few times. What do you think about the players, the musicians who contributed to Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow? I think William Gowen is is one of the one of the premier musicians that I've ever been around. He's very versatile. He's very knowledgeable. He's very patient. He has a very discerning ear and. On top of all that, he's just fundamentally a good human being. And William and I, they call him Bobby also. I call him William. We weren't, I, I wasn't even aware. Um, we had met at a coffee shop. I was playing, I was up there sitting in with a, another, uh, Ed Cotton actually at another place. And he showed up years and years and years ago. This was years ago. And I had a guitar and he walked in without a guitar. And Ed asked me, he says, hey, can can you mind if this guy uses your guitar? I handed it to him. And, and it was probably the first time that guitar had actually really been played. You know, it, it was it was a spectacular display of, of sheer musicianship right there. You know, 10 minutes. 
so I, I, you know, fast forward, I didn't really, I had pretty much forgotten about that. And we connected in another way. He had released some songs and um, I had heard them and I was really, really moved by his songs. So I, I, at that time I was, I was doing a podcast and uh, that dirt road radio show. I reached out to him and told him I'd heard his songs. I wasn't, frankly, I had not connected the dots. He was the same guy that, that you know, had played my guitar uh, at, this, at this place. In any case, we got to talking, and I did a podcast on his songs, and I was sure at that point that I wanted to make some music with this guy. So we eventually rounded up, and I, I presented some, some songs to him, and, and he agreed to play on them. And then he brought in early El, uh, Ernie Ellum, who's a bass player, who is a, I don't know, he's probably one of the most sought after bass players around this, these parts. And where you and I are sitting right now and Darren Ronan, Darren Ronan is the drummer on most of the songs on the EP. You know, Darren and, and Ernie and, and William have played music together for many years. So it was like, it was just like a comfortable place. They, they, they heard the songs. And they took to the songs very quickly, though the production part was the challenge. Now, you know, we did the recording of the EP at Radical Studios uh, on the north side of Jacksonville. Roy Peake did that work. And Roy Peake has to be one of the most patient people I've ever known. He plays on one of these songs on this, on this EP, drums and bass. And then... Ultimately, we decided to master, mix and master the, the songs at another location. I had listened to an interview with Jeff Tweedy some time ago, and Tweedy suggested that if you're going to, if you're going to record music, record it one place, have it mastered and mix, mixed and mastered in another place. I said, well, heck, I'll try it. I mean, he's, he's pretty successful at what he does. <laughs> so, so Caroline Wolf has a studio and she she mixed and mastered these songs and from a distance William and I worked with her and uh, when I got back in town I went over and listened and we made some some final modifications and she mixed them down and and mastered them and so it was it literally was a, a collective effort you know some of my favorite parts in these songs are played by these guys if you listen to the songs, there's there's aspects of those songs that you know are are certainly vastly improved upon by the musicianship of these people. So if I get an opportunity to play with these guys, I will play with them again in a millisecond. <laughs> Would you say there there was a producer of the album, or was it you? Well, I mean, I made the final final decisions about what the songs, what the mix would be. The levels would be. I mean, I, I leading up to that, Carolyn Wolf. That was a that was a collective, you know, effort there. William did a lot of work around that. I mean, he did the best he could. Again, we're we're in a COVID environment, and I'm a thousand miles away. And at, at some point, you hear you hear uh, so many different versions of your song, you just can't hear it enough. You, you've had enough, you know. So we we sat the circus down, so to speak. And uh, I was coming home. I got back in town, called her, went over and listened to the, the tracks 
we made some modifications and that was it. Well, I want to go back to something. You mentioned the Dirt Road Radio Show, yep. a podcast you hosted. Yep. And you were able to focus on some people that very, very influential. For example, there's a story that you have about Dave Van Ronk, mm-hmm. which if somebody reads Bob Dylan's autobiographical Chronicles. I think that's the name that you see mentioned the most, you know? Yeah. And you actually met the legendary Dave Van Ronk. I did. I did. Amazing. I, um, you know, I was aware of Van Ronk through, by, by the way, uh, just, you know, this is how life, this is how life goes. You know, you always have to keep your eyes and ears open when you when you meet someone and you encounter someone because that's going to lead someplace else. We could go on for days about this, but this podcast is a perfect example. I I had back in two thousand one. I had uh, I had the season tickets for the theater Jacksonville, and 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 in that particular year, you know, I got notified of all the shows that were coming and. Roger McGuinn was doing a show there, but but the opening act was Dave Van Ronk. Well, I knew of Van Ronk because of my my uh, you know exploring Bob Dylan and his his life and his his work, and it's very hard not to stumble upon Van Ronk when you start looking at Dylan. It's in particular in the early years. So I knew right away that if Van Ronk was coming to Jacksonville, it probably would be once. Not again. And I knew also that I wanted to speak with him. So I contacted the concert promoter and told him that I wanted to meet them, uh, Van Rock. And he said, no problem. Come down early and on the day of the show. And, and I did. And I went down and, and spent about 45 minutes or so just Dave and I talking. And he's just, you know, he's towering over me. He's, he's this giant of a man. But he's so kind, so gentle, just so generous with his time. And we talked about many things in, in, in a very short span of time. And I mean, Dave's no stranger to people trying to talk to him about music and Bob Dylan. But we really talked more about his favorite guitar store than anything, <laughs> you know. And, and, and we talked a lot about guitars. And not only was Dave an accomplished guitarist and performer, but he was also a teacher. He taught, he taught guitar to a lot of people. And up to that point, I'd never seen Dave Van Ronk perform live, but I saw him that night after we met. It was amazing to see a single individual with a single guitar and a cup of beer mesmerize 350 people in this theater. It was, it was unbelievable. He played Many styles of music that night. And it was an honor to meet him. He passed away the following year in February. I moved to, uh, I ended up in New York. I ended up starting a podcast. And so the purpose, the, 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 the premise for the podcast was to, was to showcase people who weren't known to people and people who were known to people who maybe passed away or, or were, were no longer quote relevant, you know, in, in, in terms of the commercially relevant. So I knew in the back of my mind I was eventually going to do something on Dave, and I did. And I reached out to his wife, and she was so gracious. She came up to the Upper West Side. 
and we spent a couple hours talking and and she really she really offered up a lot of information about how she stumbled upon Dave and you know just some just some details about Dave's life that I found very interesting. I mean the guy never had a driver's license. <laughs> she drove him all over the country to his gigs, you know. So, you know, the whole the whole legend that that he never changed guitar strings. She said, that's not true. He always changed his guitar strings. <laughs> but she was so kind to, and that was right around his, would have been his 80th birthday right around that time. Yeah, that podcast led me to a lot of things. William Gowen, Mary Hurt, the, the Mississippi John Hurt Foundation. The second show I did, we actually did a show on, on John Hurt, as a matter of fact. And, 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 you know, I was told by a couple of people, you'll never, what are you, how are you going to do a show on John Hurt? No one's going to talk to you. Well, heck, you just have to ask sometimes, <laughs> you know? And I reached out to, to, uh, to the publishing company that, and they referred me to his granddaughter, Mary. And she was in Chicago at the time and, and fascinating storyteller, highly intellectual individual very committed to preserving the legacy of her grandfather. And I just found her to be fundamentally a wonderful human being. And uh, we did the show. It, it really came off. One of my, it's one of my favorite shows that we did. You never know where things are going to lead you, you know. So that ended up taking us to play a show in, in Mississippi. And we've been invited back out there this year. They're not sure how it's going to go. But, uh, yeah, the podcast was the last podcast I did was in honor of Gary Smalley. And at that point, I really wanted to dedicate a lot of time to my own songs. And I thought that would be a good place to stop for, for then, you know, at that point. I may re-engage that at some point. But, um, yeah, we, we, we honored Gary's music. And we Craig Spurko, the guy who, who produced Gary's CD, he... Um, he he was he lived in Jacksonville. He now lives out of state. He lives in Georgia, but he was kind enough to do an interview. And yeah, the podcast was taught me a lot about how a twenty minute po- podcast or thirty minute podcast is actually the fruits of about thirty hours of labor. <laughs> it's hard work. It's hard work. Yeah, it's not easy. And anyone who thinks the people behind the scenes producing things and and engineering things aren't working. That's that's misconception. They're working really hard. Oh, yeah. Well, you have a strong reverence and respect for people. Something you told me, you said that you visited the grave of the late Mississippi John Hurt. And that resonates with me because I, I, I do believe we should very much remember where our music comes from, American music. But also you've had some experiences with, for example, being in the presence of someone like Bob Dylan. Who have you met where you, you really, you really were awestruck? Uh, oh heck, I don't know. I I really don't know, um, how to, how to, how to answer that. I was pretty awestruck with Dave Van Romp. Yeah. To be quite honest with you. And primarily, because I, I was aware of his impact on music, mm-hmm. not commercially, but in real terms. I was all struck by his humble nature. Yeah. That, that was, that was, it was very, it, it really impressed me. 
But visiting John Hurt's grave, being invited out to play that festival in October of 2019, you know, uh, frankly, I felt a little bit conspicuous to be invited out there. I mean, there's a guy that was on the bill, Guy Davis. I've been following his music for a long time and listened to his music often. And he covered uh, Sweetheart Like You. And he does a rendition of that song that, I mean, it, it'll, it'll knock you out, you know? So I thought, well, this guy is going to show up out here. I, you know, uh, William Gowen and I went and uh, to play. William was gracious enough to go with me to play my songs and play some of his songs. But we get there, and one of the first people I run into is Guy Davis, you know? And you think, well, like, you think in your mind, when I meet this person, I'm going to say this and this and this, right? If I ever met this person. Well, that's not the way it goes. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's busy. He was very kind. He was very generous. I, I was very privileged to meet him. And Taj Mahal, very privileged to meet him. Very privileged to be in that space with these people, you know? But probably the high point for me in that whole that whole festival, that whole trip, was the day before. We had we, a, a, a girl came with us. She met us out there. She actually sings backup on on some of the songs on the on Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow. And uh, so she was there, and at the last minute, she came up on stage and and sang with us, played with us. You know, that was a last minute thing. It was so impromptu. Hmm. All that said, the high point for me was the day before when when William and I went out and we just drove the this this vast area in Mississippi down these roads and these cotton fields and we were looking for John's grave. We were told where it was. It's up that way three miles and then you know you just turn down this dirt path and, it, and the next thing you know, man, we're in the woods. What struck me was where the grave was located and the condition. And it was just this is a this is a guy who who probably arguably one of the best acoustic guitar players that ever lived. Mm. And very humble grave. Very humble people there. It was a it was a daunting experience to stand on a stage and to your left is his house that they had moved to the property and then to you to the right of the stage is the church he attended. If you, 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 you can't, there's no way you're not affected by that in some way because you're, you're standing in the presence and you can feel the presence of John Hurt and his, his granddaughter was so accommodating and she's so interested in her grandfather's legacy. In a, in a sincere, genuine way. There were many people there who were there to just honor John Hurt. And to be part of that was, was a good thing. It's a good day. Hmm. <laughs> well, going back to Hero Today, Villain Tomorrow, I'm curious about the song Old Man Gan. Was this a real person? Yeah. Old Man Gan... When I was a kid, 
one year when I was a kid, I guess, say, seven or eight or so. That particular year, we moved four times in one year. Hmm. Well, you know, that'll do a couple things for you. It'll, it'll introduce you to instability, but it'll also introduce you into a world of, of adapting to change, right? And so, so it, it, in any case, the fourth, place, the fourth place we landed that year, we lived next door to an old abandoned house, and then next door to that was another house. And this gentleman would sit on his front porch, and we would just go talk to him. And he was, he was harmless. And he was feeble, and he was vulnerable. And he shared a lot of his life stories with us. Kids, he had family, but they weren't coming around, you know. He, he told stories about the Civilian Conservation Corps. He lived through the Depression. I mean, he, he had some, some wonderful, wonderful stories that you don't forget because they were impactful. He liked his liquor. He liked to, he rolled his own cigarettes, <laughs> you know. If he went someplace, his dog went with him. Yeah, he was a real person. And, and, in, and, in, and in reality, heck, I may have started writing that song when I was eight or nine. Wow. Who knows? Because it never left me, you know. But he, was, he surely was a real man, and he surely was a, was a kind man. And he surely was someone that, that I never forgot. This is a story of old man Gan Sat on the porch with a bottle in his hand Blue flannel shirt and old brogan hands were stained by Prince Albert in the can And he yelled out, Tippy, come here, Tippy Was his dog that he had for ten years That old dog was his best friend He'd run off And come back again He was crying real tears About a gal that had left him in the three years Seems the only thing taking him off his mind Was the truth that he found in a pint of early time He yelled out, Tippy, come here, Tippy Was his dog that he had for ten years That old dog was his best friend He'd run off Come back again Well, there's there's one song on the EP, Medicine Man. Mm -hmm. And this is a, an unusual song, wouldn't you say? Well, I don't know if it's unusual. It's different than the others, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But 
What was the inspiration behind that one? Well, I'm not sure I know who he is. Hmm. You understand? Yeah. Or who he's not. And I'm not, I'm not sure. That, that song was, uh, it presented itself and I wrote it. Hmm. I'm not, and, I, and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be coy, but <laughs> I don't really know. Well, songs can be mysterious. Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. I think perhaps I wrote that song probably, heck, I, I probably wrote that song 20 years ago. Wow. You know? So I don't know where I was at that time. <laughs> you know, I don't even know who I was at that time. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. As the cold wind blows, the sun goes down. He walks along this one horse town. He's got no money, not even a dime. Vice a dictator, dictator is time. He's a medicine man. Anybody out there, if they're interested in finding out more, they can go to howardjacksoncurry.com. What would you say is the best thing about being Howard Curry? Well, I'm alive. I think that's a great thing. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. I'm a very fortunate person. I have, I got people who care about me that I care about. I try to live pretty simple. And that seems to be my best approach. If I try to get things too too convoluted or complex, that doesn't work for me. Simplicity is the best thing about me and the good people that I that I know and that I care about. <laughs> Last night, you just kind of said it in passing, but you, you said something like, you said, look, I'm a country boy. That's a fact. At heart. No, that's a fact. <laughs> and, I, and I'm a deep believer in God. I'm not a very, I wouldn't characterize myself as a religious person. But I, I do have, you know, I think we all go to God when, whenever we need something, right? You know, but I try to, 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 to communicate with God, whoever he or she is, right? In that, in my, in the best way I can. But I keep those lines of communication open at all times because, uh, that's a, that's a soft place to fall for me hmm. and, and a necessary, necessary place for me to go. For sure. Something that's been happening a lot with the interviews I've been doing lately is I'll get an email from somebody and it'll be something that, you know, I'll think, gosh, I recorded that interview 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, but they, they email me and it's like 
It just happened. They say, hey, I listened to your interview with so-and-so. Mm-hmm. So we don't know when someone will listen to this. Right. It could be five years from now. Right. could be three weeks from now. Mm-hmm. Whenever it is that someone is listening to this, mm-hmm. wherever they are, what would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, not not much. I don't really have any words of wisdom, but I I would I I do hope that it, that that the songs that that I write and that that we play that they like them, and you know I hope that people we all learn to be better to ourselves. You know the world is so full of of adversity and things that I don't even I I, I try to tune out all the all the all the news and all this stuff anymore, you know, because I can't, I can't, I can't sort through all of it. It's difficult. So, you know, I go back to what makes sense to me. Sea of heartbreak, (laughs) mansion on the hill. Most of the time, California stars, songs, musicians. I think good musicians and songwriters they're, they're, they're good for us. They're good for us. Very well put. Well, Howard Curry, thank you so much for your interest. I'm very honored to meet you, honored to interview you. It's been a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much. Put her there. Goodbye.